I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm actually really excited, even though my voice doesn't sound all so excited, because today we have a returning guest. It is, are you all ready? Dun, dun, dun. Dan Cazino, because he is so awesome. He doesn't need an introduction. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Hi, Alina. How are you today? Great. We've got an awesome topic to talk about today, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about, in fact, break a uh, many years of silence and talk about my career in the uh, not-so-secret Secret Service. <laughs> so listen, instead of us chatting rubbish for the next five minutes, I think we should just jump straight into the first question. So, first of all, please tell us, what is the U.S. Secret Service? Well, the U.S. Secret Service is about 7,000 people, plus or minus. It is a U.S. Department, uh, uh, well, U.S. Law Enforcement Agency. Uh, For most of its history, it was part of the Treasury Department, and in 2003 moved into the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, It is... It is a it is a law enforcement agency, one of the one of the oldest ones, and it has this funny split mission of, uh, you know, creating a creating a safe space for the president, uh, the vice president, and a handful of other uh, protectees, as we call them. But it also has this other mission of enforcing the counterfeiting laws. Uh, it's a very interesting split mission, and uh, I think you'll probably we'll talk about the history of why it is. But the U.S. Secret Service is one of a number of of uh, federal law enforcement agencies. It, the United States is probably the only country in the world where the so-called Secret Service is not an intelligence agency, and it's not a spy agency. It's not the same thing as the CIA. Uh, people often make those mistakes, but it's at the end of the day, it's a law enforcement agency with with a large protective role to protect the president of the United States, the vice president, the houses they live in, uh, and things like visiting foreign foreign uh, heads of state. Do you know what? All you, since you've been talking, since you started talking, do you know the one thing that's you're going to hate me for this? Please don't. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that's going through my mind is Olympus has fallen. Oh, don't even start with me on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or there was the Clint Eastwood in the line of fire, you know, which had a bunch of guys out there welding manhole covers shut, you know. And I, I was really excited because I thought I was going to learn how to weld manhole covers. But, you know, uh, there is, as there always is, there is a wide gap between Hollywood and reality. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the Secret Service sounds glamorous. And let me tell you, there are aspects of it that are. You get a nice badge. You get to, you know, you get to travel around the world. You know, you occasionally get to ride in the motorcade. But for every bit that's glamorous, there's um, there's squalor and boredom. There's an awful lot of sitting in the back of a van eating cold takeaway cheeseburgers with a bunch of guys <laughs> who haven't bathed in three days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, that's just, 
I mean, if that's your thing, I could give you a whole. I, I can probably find you the current recruiting brochure. But you know. <laughs> do you know? Okay, do you know what? We can dispel a few myths later on because uh, I, yeah. prom- I promise not to keep Olympus as falling in my mind. I will be open-minded for this. So, let's do a bit of history before we get stuck into your career. So, can you okay. tell us? When was the Secret Service created and why was it created? Well, it was created in 1865. It was the end of the Civil War. Uh, The problem was that the U.S. financial system, uh, the North North having won, but the South being now under occupation, the financial system, which had been based on gold and silver coin and copper coinage, had largely collapsed, and there was now this advent of paper money, but paper money was easily counterfeited. So at the end of the Civil War, so much of the currency in circulation was was counterfeit. It was considered a huge national crisis. But this was at a point at which there really, other than the U.S. Marshals and some customs inspectors at seaports, there really wasn't the equivalent of a, there wasn't a federal law enforcement agency. The federal government was not as big as it is now. Uh, So this agency got created as part of the Treasury Department, originally with the remit of tackling, uh, tackling counterfeiting. And it started out with a small handful of people. They weren't called agents at the time. They were called operatives, which I thought was really cool. Uh, And, it gradually through sort of the classic, you know, cowboy era in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, it, it had, it was a small agency that had very good, you know, law enforcement guys who went around and cracked down on counterfeiting. Uh, it did not get the, uh, it didn't get the mission of protecting presidents until the assassination of uh, President McKinley. And he was the third he was the third president in 40 years to get assassinated. And by this point, it was like, come on, guys, this is a bit of a, this is a bit of a, you know, national embarrassment. We had Lincoln and Garfield and now McKinley all shot because we don't really have adequate security for uh, sitting presidents. And at the time of the McKinley assassination, the Secret Service was still really one of the only uh, law enforcement agencies that was under the federal government's direct control that was actually in existence. The FBI wouldn't exist there. None of the other agencies existed. So the Secret Service picked up the presidential protection role, and it, it, it grew from there. Uh, originally, it was just presidents and acquired sort of gradually over time the protection of the vice president, protection of uh, protection of presidential family members, uh, became after the assassination of Robert Kennedy in 1968 uh it picked up the uh, you know the, the 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 mission the idea of protecting major presidential candidates uh, and there's an algorithm or you know, a decision process by which you know they decide at what point does a candidate really become major enough to require secret service protection and it grew i mean it grew uh, it grew in fits and spurts and it adapted from a very small agency with guys with, you know, magnifying glasses good at looking at, uh, you know, pieces of suspect currency into, you know, uh, you know, quintessentially a very modern, modern law enforcement agency. And as I said, it, it's about 7,000 people right now, uh, give wow. or take. Yeah, I'm sure we could probably Google the exact figure. Yeah, it, the figure hovered on 7,000 all the, uh, the six years I was working there. That's a, that's a lot of law enforcement. Well, yeah, uh, because it still has it still has the counterfeiting mission, 
And that mission has also grown to things like mortgage fraud and identity theft and a lot of online stuff. So the Secret Service still does a lot of these financial crimes. Now, I was never involved with that side of thing. Uh, but the way the Secret Service is organized, you know, a good part of the manpower is actually, you know, farmed out to field offices all over the United States uh, dealing with dealing with financial crimes. But I think that probably leads into sort of what does the Secret Service look like now and how it's organized. And so it's a lot of different things because, you know, the average person might think that the Secret Service is like the same six or seven tall guys that you see when the president gets out of his limousine. And I literally met people who thought, like, really, it was just like six or seven guys and that was it. Uh, and oh, no, very I'm, not, much... I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. No, 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 I mean, no, no. I mean, but... I know there's, there's probably so many more of you, you know, you have to do ch- shift changes and everything else. But first of all, I did not realize that it wasn't just like taking care of the president and the vice president. There's more to it than that. So you can call me ignorant there that I didn't know that it went beyond, you know, protecting the president, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, and you're going to ask you're going to ask me how I ended up working there and the sort of work that I did. And one way to lead into that is to sort of describe, you know, really the sort of the geography of the Secret Service, if you will. We will uh, the get Secret there. Service. Yeah, we will uh, get so, there because I okay. want to know a bit more because okay. we now hit the 20th century, mm-hmm. and I want to know what the Secret Service does in 20th century because obviously the 20th century is the best century. Yeah, well, yeah. So far, I just got a better run than this one. I tell you, <laughs> I was pushed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, the Secret Service spent much of uh, much of the 20th century in the same same mode that it did. At, you know, it, it began the it began the 20th century having picked up this mission of protecting the president and did it quite successfully. It, it foiled several missions, uh, several assassinations. There were assassination attempts against Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, uh, the two Roosevelts. Uh, there was an assassination attempt against uh, against uh, Harry Truman. Uh, that uh, they, they succeeded there, although I, a uniformed policeman who was seconded to the Secret Service, uh, Leslie Kofeld, died in the line of duty there during that attack. Uh, but it was still not a large agency. It was it was in the it was in 400, 500, 600. I'm not sure exactly how big the agency was at the time that which uh, John Kennedy got assassinated in 1963. I was about to say there were some failures, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, and and the Secret Service uh, is one of these agencies by necessity is reactive. It reacts to things, and it reacted very, very sharply to that as a result of the things like the Warren Commission report, there was this lengthy inquiry into the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, the Secret Service just was not up to the task in the modern era uh, at that point. And, and the Warren Commission looked at a lot of things, not just, not just, you know, the exact circumstances of the Kennedy incident. They looked at a lot of other things. Uh, the result being a rapid, a rapid expansion of the Secret Service's resources and personnel after that point, and and it, and that expansion continued, you know, uh, continued uh, as as threats evolved. The Secret Service starts worrying more about from the like sort of the 1960s onwards. Starts worrying not just about guys with knives and guns. That's what really they've been traditionally worried about. They start worrying about bombs and, and technological threats. Uh, you get into the 1990s. 
the Secret Service starts worrying about things like radiation and poisoning and uh, chemical weapons, which is kind of how I end up in the whole scene here. Aha. The plot thickens. Uh The plot thickens. It kind of makes sense now, actually. It makes complete sense. So if you guys um, haven't listened to Dan's previous podcast, Head Back, I can't remember which number, number it is. I will go and double check in a moment. But he does talk about chemical warfare in history, and we specifically cover the 1930s, well, just before the 1930s, so so interwar period. So mm-hmm. the dots are now finally connecting to how you got involved into the Secret Service. So actually tell us, tell us how you got involved. Well, I had two jobs at the White House. The Secret Service was the second of the two. I, I worked in 1996 to 2002, uh, just up the street from the, the from what became my Secret Service office. I worked with a, another organization called the White House Military Office, where I was the chemical, biological, and radiological defense specialist there. And there's a lot I still can't say about that job, but, you know, some of it was very mundane. Some of it was exciting, but oh, I was effectively a – the Defense Department liaison to the Secret Service on many, many, many things, particularly in the areas where I was, you know, the specialist. If the Secret Service needed any sort of military equipment or expertise on chemical or biological radiological defense, I was literally the guy whose job it was to work to see that they got it, okay? Uh, And they quite quickly, the guys that I ended up working for, you know, quite quickly realized that I was actually quite valuable resource. They started sending guys over to me to get training. Um, it wasn't too long before they started begging me to come work for them. And eventually they, they made a case I couldn't refuse. It was sort of the, the I kept upping the ante and eventually, eventually they came up with an offer that was compelling enough for me to quit the White House military office, move down the street and become a secret service guy. Uh, and, and I think this is going to lead into what my actual job was there. Um, but in order to explain that, I've really got to explain how the Secret Service is organized because people sometimes call me a Secret Service agent, and I wasn't because there are more people than agents in the Secret Service. All right. So cut me off if I'm going down a rabbit hole here. Go the, for it. You know, Go for it. So, so where you got where you got the Secret Service organized, like I said, there's about you know, 7,000 people. So a good swath of that will be the normal headquarters and administrative people that you have in any organization, HR, logistics, budget, you know, things like that, whatever the, whatever the funny office it was called where I had to go get your drug testing, you had to go pee in a cup, whatever that office was, run by a very strange guy, I have to say. Um, but, you know, all the, all the normal administrative uh, and managerial stuff that goes with any government agencies there, uh, I'd say, but the majority, or at least, you know, probably half the agency are what they call secret service agents. They are criminal investigators. Uh, and they, they, what they do is they spend their career divided between doing criminal investigations and protective work. And in Washington, DC, uh, there, there are two main sort of places where they would work would be the presidential protection division and the vice presidential protection division, each measured in the hundreds of people. All right. Uh, but also, at the time, there was about 1,300 people in the in the uh, in the Secret Service that were basically well, not they were they were police officers, the uniform division of the Secret Service, who are you know basically the uniformed police officers who are at the White House, they're at the 
vice president's residence, and they're for a very strange historical reason. They're also the policemen who are in and around uh, the foreign embassies in Washington, D.C. And so there was something like 1,200 or 1,300 of those guys in the Secret Service. Uh, and then there's guys like me. I came in through a, not quite the back door to the Secret Service, but, you know, around the corner down the street was this other outfit called the Technical Security Division. And we were the guys who all had technical expertise and one or more of a number of specialty disciplines that were also needed by the Secret Service. Uh, I had guys there who were former firefighters, uh, electronic specialists, a lot of electronic specialists for various reasons. Um, guys who were proper security specialists in terms of, you know, security cameras and uh, locks and alarms and stuff like that. Uh, explosive ordnance disposal bomb squad guys and guys like me who were specialists in chemical and biological stuff. So this technical security division where I got hired is responsible for protecting the president and the vice president of the White House from these uh, non-traditional or technological hazards, uh, things other than just guns and knives. Uh, so we were, in a lot of ways, you know, we were the, uh, you know, we were the, we were the, we we're the brains of the op- operation in a lot of ways. We were, we were the specialists in, a, in these, in these, in these, uh, you know, dark arts. And my job title was an agent. Uh, I had this funny contrived job title of senior physical security specialist, which really doesn't do justice to what I did. Uh, but, you know, my title really should have been something like, you know, uh, yeah, poison gas guy. <laughs> <laughs> so basically you weren't the muscle. You weren't that guy standing in the black suit and the tie and the sunglasses and the radio in his ear. So you weren't one of those guys. You were behind. Oh, no, but I, I, you know, I, I had dark suits. I had the radio in my ear. In fact, one of the first things you have to do is you've got to go to this hearing aid shop three blocks west of the White House, and some lady pours hot wax into your ears to pour you a, 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 to to cast you for an earpiece. Uh, uh, so you see, so if if you imagine, if you imagine, you know, six or seven guys around the president, the president's talking on stage. Now, immediately off stage, there'll be me in my suit probably sweating a lot because I'm wearing chemical protective long underwear, carrying a large rucksack with my own gas mask and the president's gas mask and like a chemical warfare detector and a radiation detector and some emergency medical gear and a set of gloves and all sorts of other good stuff. Uh, My job was to be a little bit out of sight, but close enough to keep an eye on what was going. So if literally somebody were to stand up in the crowd and throw a water balloon at some toxic chemical, I would spring into action, and there would also be, you know, another three or four guys out in the van sitting outside the venue waiting for, for me to call in the cavalry, uh, and so that's what we did, you know, so I did that for years. I was either sitting in the van or I was, you know, sweating in a, with my chemical protective long underwear. Um, I did an awful lot of that. So I traveled the world. You know, our joke was we were just one van away from history. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, but, you know, oftentimes, we, you know, because the president travels, there's an advanced team. So I was often on the event. I gave, I gave up counting how many advanced teams I was on. Uh, I traveled. I, count, I went to probably 15 countries and probably 45 of the 50 U.S. states over the course of six years. Um, it sounds exciting, but after a while, you start to know every single airport. You become a specialist in hotel chains and airports more than anything else. 
So forget your training. You're just now an airport and hotel specialist. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it sets you up perfectly for a life of business travel later on. You know exactly what to do, you know. <laughs> and exactly yeah. where to go. Uh, yeah, or where not to go. I mean, you know, if any, uh, if, if 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 you have any listeners out there in Toledo, Ohio, I'm very sorry. I'm just never going to your city again. It's just, it's dead to me. Oh, I don't know. We might do. I'd have to double check with Alex. She'll be able to tell us. I mean, maybe it's 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 possible Toledo is gentrified, but you know, uh, uh, you know, I I mean, sometimes sometimes I ended up like on these fishing trips in the middle of nowhere with Dick Cheney, or you know, he always had this propensity propensity to go either try to catch fish or to go shoot birds in the middle of nowhere, and you know, there was so I've I've been to some shacks in the middle of nowhere with like what's the point you know i don't really think al-qaeda is you know hiding in his duck blind to to throw a nerve agent on dick cheney it's not really a viable thing but there i was <laughs> do you know what you need to tell us a bit more where you've gone but before you do uh what was it actually like to work there did you actually enjoy your job you know i think uh, i yeah i think on the whole i did but i think it had a wider it had a wider curve, I think, between the worst days and the best days, okay, than, than, than most jobs you could ever have. I mean, a bad day in the Secret Service is a really bad day, okay, uh, you know, uh, but a good day is a really good day. I mean, you know, you're getting to do cool stuff, you know, you're flying on a helicopter with the president, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, but also, you get days where you get up at four o'clock in the morning, you don't get home till midnight, and you real, then you get, you know, as you're walking the door, uh, this is this is how old I am. I have a pager. My pager has a message on saying, "Hey Dan, sorry, we had to change the rotor for tomorrow. You got to be back in at six a.m. and get on the plane to go to Miami." I mean, oh, stuff what? like that would happen all the time. Oh my I, gosh! How did you manage yeah. it? I mean, that's like you're running on no sleep, basically. Yeah, yeah, it, it'll wear you down. I mean, the joke was it was the best two jobs you'll ever have. Uh, it was, and it was particularly bad in, 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 in 2004 was bad because it was an election year. Election years, you know, it just eat up the manpower of the Secret Service. It just consumes, it's, it's, it's everybody with a badge and going out to the trenches, you know, or in my case, out to the you know, roadside in Ohio or what have you like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I found, I mean, uh, I found it highly educational in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I mean, my job was such that I was constantly going to different towns and cities, working with my local counterparts in police and fire departments and the local FBI office and things like that. So, I mean, I saw, I saw, I saw the best and worst of everything, you know, and sometimes, you know, so I saw, I, you know, I, I worked with some really, really, really good guys. And I worked with some guys like, really, the state can't get over fast enough because I'm just going to have to shoot this guy in the head before the day's over. You know? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but most days were somewhere in between, you know. Uh, you know, I, I, went to, I, I hated going to New York City. Oh, that was, you know, just not that I don't like New York. I just, I just hate it. New York was not a good city to be in the Secret Service in, you know. Uh, it's particularly particularly it's like really noisy and you end up working a night shift and then you just can't sleep during the day because of all the sirens because the president's in town is a motorcade everywhere (laughs) planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I'm assuming this year is also going to be quite heavy for the Secret Service because there is an election this oh, year, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and it would have started a while ago. Uh, although I, with less campaign events and the COVID, I have no idea how the COVID is affecting stuff there. So I'm a bit out of the loop there. But I mean, if you look at the statistics at the Secret Service, uh, the election years are used as a almost like a de facto hazing ritual. It shakes people out and sort of, it's, uh, and you know, a lot of people quit after after a campaign year. You know, they'll bank they'll bank the overtime and say, "Sod it, I'm not doing this again." You know, and go on and do something else. Um, and you know, I, I, even only a couple of years in the Secret Service sets you up well for other things uh, because the tra- it's a well regarded agency and the training is good and all that. So, uh, so the the numbers always dip after a, after a campaign year, and having a couple of campaigns under your belt and not having quit uh, and has survived sort of two or three campaigns really sort of is really the, the path into middle and upper management, the secret service. Cause it, it means that like really you can put up with the punishment. You still don't mind working here. Uh, it doesn't make necessarily for the healthiest working environment. Uh, it's never been an agency where I consider that the morale was particularly high uh, because of stuff I already mentioned, you know, you know, travel is glamorous for the first week and then it's acceptable for the next six weeks. And then, but you know, week 15, you're starting to like wonder, you know, you wake up and you, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're in a hotel room that looked like the last 20 hotel rooms and you literally don't know where the hell you are. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, uh, by Christmas, I'm assuming the secret service will be recruiting. So if you are interested, do sign up. Yes. You know, it's, uh, Exactly. It's not a bad job. It's well paid, I have to say. You know, my my problem, I think, part of my problem was I was 33 when I joined the Secret Service. And really, it's a system set up to really bruise and abuse 25-year-olds. And, you know, use use a lot of 25-year-olds for the, uh, the, 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 the brute force labor. And even so, there I am, sort of ten years later. Like, yeah, even at thirty-five, like, damn, I'm too old for this crap. <laughs> you know, the twenty-five-year-old guys, ah, oh, this is cool. I'm making a lot of overtime money. I don't have a family anyway. I'll live out of a box for the campaign year. <laughs> there were always five or six guys around the office who seemed to not actually have a residence during the campaign year. <laughs> they seemed to be getting all their posts at the office and you know, uh, doing all their doing their la- doing their laundry at the laundrette down the street. You know, you know on the three days in the month that they were actually not on the road. <laughs> so talk to us about your training, because in my mind, I, I've either got one or two options. Either you did like sort of a military style, you know, obstacle course style training, or on the opposite flip side, kind of like the FBI or the CIA secret, you know, spy training. 
Well, the Don't thing you tell is, me I'm wrong, right? <laughs> well, well, for me, for, for me, I got the job because I was already a chemical and biological radiological guy with a rather a lot of background in that already from military and as defense department civilian employee. Uh, so part of, so my, 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 my training was kind of tailored to me. Uh, and when you join this technical security division, you're not in a traditional training pipeline. Like, you know, agents go through a specific training pipeline. Uh, so do the uniform division police officers. They have quite a set training pipeline, uh, you know, the, the, the uniform division guys have effectively that basically it's a police academy. Uh, and the Secret Service agents have something not dissimilar to uh, the FBI training program at Quantico. Uh, whereas us, um, what they would do, they would literally tailor a training package for what our role was. Uh, you know, I, 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 I came in and realized that, you know, basically they already expected me to know my chemical and biological stuff. Uh, I, I already had a huge, thick, dense CV on that. There wasn't anything they were going to teach me on that. And I realized that they were going to very quickly use me to teach other people on that. Uh, but what they wanted me to do was be smart on the other things that the technical security division does, because you have to have a little bit of cross-training in the other things. So uh, I had a lot of training in explosives. Uh, I went to EOD school down in Florida. I didn't do the whole course. They send you on the improvised explosive device course, so you can learn to, you know, make pipe bombs and wear a bomb suit and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, that sounds like fun, actually. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how not fun it was. Um, <laughs> Thanks for ruining it for me, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, I went to this. Uh, I you know I went to this uh, physical security course in Wisconsin that was actually quite interesting because I learned how to pick locks. I learned how to like you know, uh, I mean, just, I learned to, I learned how to install burglar alarms. Not that I ever needed to do that, but you know. <laughs> so basically, what you're saying is that you'd make a very good burglar and a very good terrorist at the same time. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody's safe with me around. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I, I think that the, the the most intensive training that I did was because. Our chemical and biological response team, it was called the Hammer Team, uh, we were meant to provide emergency medical care as well. So, and a lot of the guys on the team were, were paramedics, or ex-paramedics come out of a, come out of an emergency medical background. I didn't have much medical background. I didn't have a medical background much more than the sort of army first aid training. So I got sent through this whole emergency medical technician program that the Secret Service runs. And I got sent to, uh, then an advanced course, uh, that's run by the army on treating chemical warfare casualties and a few other modules, you know, so, you know, I got really good at gunshot wounds and stabbings and stuff like that. I did my, I did my practical work. Uh, I did my practical work at Johns Hopkins uh, emergency room in, in downtown Baltimore. And so I've, I've seen every conceivable injury possible. And then I did a week with the Maryland state police air ambulance, you know, going to traffic wrecks and stabbings and shootings and stuff. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I got really good on the medical stuff. Uh, that was really the area where I had to catch up. Now, my guys, my colleagues who were paramedic guys, they had to really catch up on the chemical and biological radiological stuff. They had to go out to hazardous materials, chemistry courses and things like that. So they, they, they tailor, in the branch where I work, they tailor a package to you. And I spent much of my first year going to, going to these training courses. 
and only only really as I'm starting to get my ticket punched in these different things, and they finally start sending me out on actual protective missions gradually. In the first couple you do, you do it in a sort of an apprentice role. You're really like doing a ride along with somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, you know, so you can see what happens. And gradually you you get they literally call it getting signed off for different types of missions. So so after about a year and a half, I'm full up doing everything. So what you're telling us, Dan, is that you're a dangerous, dangerous man. Well, I suppose I could be. I, so I, I like to think I'm good natured. Uh, I, you know, I, <laughs> no, you I, are. I only, you I, are. <laughs> I only, I only, I only, I only drew my pistol twice in the Secret Service, uh, and once was on a llama. <laughs> oh, no, what? Sorry. A llama. Now this is my. You know, people have been begging me for the llama story for years. I mean, you know, maybe I'm going to give you. Can I give you the exclusive on the llama story? Oh my God! Yes, please give us. I want to. I want to hear more. Okay. Uh, it was the 2004 campaign. I was somewhere in Ohio, uh, and it was one of those things where. Yes, I'm the highly skilled chemical biological guy, but it's the middle of the campaign. They sort of need everybody to do a little bit of everything. So me and this other guy, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name him. You know, he knows who he is if he's listening. Me and this other guy are stuck out in Ohio doing reconnaissance on this 200-mile-long bus route because George Bush gets this idea that he can have this big battle bus and, you know, do these massive 200, 300-mile, you know, campaign caravans, you know, and stopping every little 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 town in the middle of nowhere and kiss babies and buy hot dogs and, you know, shake hands and all that stuff that candidates do. Well those 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 sort of that two hundred mile bus campaign, we, we, we you know, whatever you want to call it, bus of Palooza or whatever. Um, these things were logistical and operational nightmares. Uh, but part of what you had to do was you had to have guys out really doing reconnaissance on the route to figure out where the trouble spots likely were to be. And that becomes an all-day thing every day for several days on a 200-mile route. Uh, and so there I was with this other guy. We're just going to call him Mike. Uh, Mike and I are out there. Mike's also a highly qualified chemical biological guy. You know, we're out there. And we're supposed to be finding this pumpkin patch. <laughs> what? Sorry? Yeah, some farmer has got this stand on the side of the road selling pumpkins because it's two days before Halloween, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and I have this cryptic handwritten note from one of the campaign staff saying, all right, the bu- we've, we've got a plan that the, uh, that, the, uh, the pre- uh, that the bus is going to stop at this pumpkin patch, and you know, the president's going to get around and uh, get out and, like, look at pumpkins and, like, shake the farmer's hand, and all right, okay. So the problem is it is two days before Halloween. It's... You know, rural Ohio, it's the farm belt. But every every two or three miles, there's another farmer with a pumpkin patch selling pumpkins. And like, so after about the tenth one, we're sick of looking pumpkins. We looking pumpkins. We have no idea if it's the right one or not. Um, you know, our guidance was highly specific. It's the one on the right side of the road. <laughs> Which right side okay. of the road? <laughs> exactly. So eventually, you know, you know, eventually it's it's getting dark and we're finally in this pumpkin patch. And I finally got a hold of the guy, all right, that we were supposed to do. Was, oh, yeah, it's the pumpkin patch run by the Amish farmer. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Because... Yeah, okay, so I get out there. It's By now it's dark. We find the Amish pumpkin farm. 
You know, I, you know, not everybody even knows that there's Amish in Ohio. There's plenty of Amish in Ohio. Beards, you know, horses, wagons, you know, no plumbing, the whole nine yards, you know. And so it's dark. And we think that we're in the right pumpkin patch. And I'm walking around sort of kicking pumpkins, you know, not knowing what. I mean, how do you how do you do reconnaissance in a pumpkin patch anyway? <laughs> Someone's going to be you hiding know. in the pumpkin patch, wearing a pumpkin as that. I don't know. I don't know. Making stuff. Well, no. Oh, I, I'm actually, you know, out there with my flashlight looking for, like, you know, big LPG gas tanks and, like, uh, you know, tanker trucks full of anhydrous ammonia for, for fertilizer purposes and things like that. So I'm still using my brains. None of that there. It's the Amish. They don't have any natural gas. They don't have any fertilizer. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this creature attacks us out of the dark. And it was dark because it's real high on it. And this thing is coming at us. And I'm like, you know, what the hell is this? It's just coming out, making this horrible noise. And they're like, is that a dog? If it's a dog, it's the biggest dog I had ever seen in my life. And it's coming at us. And Mike, Mike and I, we both get our pistols out. And like, think, you know, we're getting savaged by some Amish dog. We at least got to protect ourselves, you know. And it turned out to be a llama. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this big gray llama. And it was angry. It's angry that we're in its pumpkin patch, and it's hissing, and it's spitting, and llama spit is horrible. I call it spit isn't isn't really the right story. It's like projectile stomach acid in like a fire hose out its you can you know you can you can YouTube it. Trust me, and it's and it, it stains and it burns. It's disgusting, and, and of course Mike and I are having this. Uh, you know, we're yelling at each other. We're yelling at the llama. We're having this argument about whether or not the Secret Service use of firearms policy allows us to shoot this damn thing. <laughs> Please tell me you didn't shoot the llama. No, I really wanted to, but you know, <laughs> but this is this you know that you know, this is the thing. The twenty-five-year-old guy would have shot it. But at this point, thirty-five-year-old Dan says, "You know what? I've been in the government a long time. That that's a lot of paperwork." And it's an Amish llama. This is going to be the newspaper. Brother Abraham or whatever his name is, full beard, everything, is going to ride a horse to to court to sue the Secret Service. In the next five years of my life, I'm just going to be the llama killer. You know? No. So so eventually... So uh, instead, uh, as as the memo I wrote said, uh, I resorted to... uh, I de-escalated and resorted to uh, less than lethal means of force, which meant I punched the damn thing. Do you know what? I'm now going to call you the llama killer. That is it. That is your new nickname, or the attempted yeah, llama killer. I, the llama puncher. Llama I, I, puncher. I, I, I punched it, I slapped it a couple times, and then I threw a pumpkin at it. Did it go away? Yeah. Yeah, I realized that, you know, here's some crazy white man throwing pumpkins in the middle of the night. You know, I had better things to do. And probably by that point, it was out of spit because the spit was all over me. (laughs) (laughs) Mean, yeah, so, so, so Mike is laughing is literally just laughing his ass off at me. And this, yeah, I got to get back to the, get back to the, get back to our, you know, rental car. And I'm just covered in smelly llama spit. I got to drive about. 100 miles back to our hotel, I'm just sort of like, you know, literally got my shirt off and hanging the shirt out off the TV, off the radio aerial of the car to try to air it out. Oh, my God. I really – yeah, that – thank that. do you know what? I think that is the perfect story to end this yeah. podcast because that was just epic. Yeah, so – so everybody thinks it's all glamorous. Yeah, you get a badge and a gun and you get to go meet the chicks. No, Dan gets to meet the llama. 
<laughs> Dan, listen, thank you so much for joining us, telling us about the history, telling us about your service, and telling us about this awesome love story. <laughs> And I have give, people have been bugging me for years about the llama, and I have given you, Alina, I have given you the exclusive on the llama. We're very, very grateful for that. Thank you so much, Dan. <laughs> well, I'm glad to get that off my chest, really. Oh, and don't forget, quickly before we do go, quickly plug your book. Oh, yes. My book is now out, Toxic, A History of Nerve Agents from Nazi Germany to Putin's Russia. I should say the history because nobody else has really written it. It's available in the UK right now, uh, Amazon or Waterstones or Foils. Uh, go go uh, ask at your own independent bookshop. It should be available within a few months in the U.S. Uh, if you're listening in the U.S. and you just absolutely have to have a copy now, you, there's a site called Book Depository in the U.K. that will send you one. It'll be a little pricey, but you can get one. Uh, or just watch my Twitter feed, and I'll make sure everybody in the whole world knows when it's available in the U.S. Perfect. Thank you so much again, Dan. And thank you. Join us tomorrow when Kathy Yarbrough will be with us to talk all about black women and reconstruction after the American Civil War. It's so interesting. Don't miss that one. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 